1: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. It's hard to convey now just how overwhelming the threat of nuclear catastrophe felt in the 1980s. The Cold War was a daily fear that you woke up with, a bit like Covid, but far more existential and without vaccines. Hiroshima was a living memory for many adults. In 1982, Raymond Briggs' graphic novel, When the Wind Blows, showed what the aftermath of a nuclear strike would be like. An agonising wait for help that never arrives. And then in 1986, Chernobyl revealed that nuclear power wasn't safe either. If you thought Britain wasn't really affected by Chernobyl, go and talk to sheep farmers in Wales. It wasn't until 2012 that Welsh sheep stopped being monitored for radiation. In the late 70s, NATO decided to deploy cruise missiles in Europe, which would be used to defend Western Europe if the Cold War ever turned hot. Most of the UK's share of those missiles would be at an air base called Greenham Common in Berkshire. And in 1981, women began to arrive there to protest. Jane Holgate and Stephanie Davis were there. Welcome to the bunker. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Jane is now a professor of work and employment relations at Leeds Business School. And Stephanie Davis is the author of Other Girls Like Me, a memoir of her life as a young woman, partly at Greenham Common. Stephanie, what did you find when you first visited Greenham-Connemon?
0: Well, the very first time I went was for one of the big actions where we embraced the base. Um, But the the time I went to stay, the first time I went to stay, I arrived at Blue Gate, uh, which was one of the many gates around the camp that were named after the colours of the rainbow. And I found a collection of tents and women milling around, visitors as well, including men bringing gifts. And then you had the police first and then you had the fence and then the the, the soldiers behind it and always at the heart of everything the fire burning and women sitting around it with a kettle on it making cups of tea and the kitchen area that was basically a jumble of kitchen equipment and food and uh, a very peaceful atmosphere very buzzing with kind of excitement as well
1: so anyone could just pitch up really
0: yes and, and and we did. We we kind of went, came and went whenever we felt like it. And people could come and stay for as long or as short as they liked. And people often came to bring hot food or take us for showers or bring firewood. There were some guys from Bristol who brought firewood every week. So there was a constant coming and going.
1: Jane, you were an occasional visitor to Greenham Common, I think.
2: That's right.
1: <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't just one camp. There were several camps at different points around the base and they had
2: different identities. Tell us a bit about that. So I first went uh, to Greenham just to visit in December 81, not long after the uh, camp was established. And I went down with a group of um, hunt saboteurs, women hunt, tra- hunt saboteurs from Manchester. And we gravitated towards um, the vegetarians and the vegans. And I think there was a, from what I remember, a turquoise gate, which was uh, solely vegan. And I'm not sure it was established at that time. But in later visits, um, we went down and, you know, associated with the women who were vegan and vegetarian. And we had discussions around, you know, hunt saboteurs and the peace movement and how all these things linked together, you know, in our sort of, you know, personal philosophies. And then there were some of these were more kind of what you'd now call new
1: agey, a bit more religious. There was a different vibe to each one, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, Green Gate was a women only space. So not even boy children could be or male visitors at Green Gate that were set back from the road. And Yellow Gate was the main gate, which is where the press tended to go. So the women who were comfortable talking to the press tended to be there. And then you had Blue Gate, which I've heard described as the party gate. But I, th- I think we parted at every gate. So I, I don't think that's necessarily exclusive to Blue Gate. We tended to be younger, lots of mohawks and, uh, you know, spiky hair, women from different backgrounds, from every different class. And that was very interesting and exciting. And then you had Red Gate, which was further from the road, so tended to have more children. That was when I was there. I, I don't know that it was always like that.
1: Was that your memory as well?
2: It is. I think it's it's fascinating the way that you know this was a, a you know a large women only space, but within that, you know, the interse- intersectional nature of people's characteristics led people to gravitate to different areas where they felt more comfortable, where they felt they had more in common with people, um, and in a sense, reflecting the way society works in general, the way people gravitate towards people who they feel are more like them in lots of different ways. So, I think it was a really fascinating sort of development the way that those gates established and established themselves and people gravitated to the ones that they felt most comfortable with.
1: What was the relationship with the police? Were they sort of always there or did they just come swoop in occasionally and clear out camps and so on? Would, how, how did you relate to them? Oh they were always there, they were on guard
0: in front of it and then you had the British soldiers behind them. And then deep inside the base, you had the American soldiers who you didn't see very often. So they were pretty much um, protecting this American military base. And then they came en masse when there was a big action, or if they were going to let the cruise missiles out, in which case they came to pen the women in so that we couldn't lie down in front of the great big convoys that used to come bursting out of the gates from time to
1: time. So being a Greenham woman, it was a personal journey for you, as well as a political one. And you came, you you came out as a lesbian when you were, uh, I suppose, at the camp and around the camp. How did Greenham sort of enable that to happen?
0: It was just so liberating to be in this women-only space. I had been in a relationship with a young man for several years that was emotionally abusive, but I hadn't realised it was until I was at the camp and was able to think about and reflect on it. I also had never seen lesbians before, and it's probably hard for young people to realize how invisible lesbians were at the time. And now I was seeing these gorgeous women, like, striding around, kissing each other on the lips. I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> I didn't know this was a choice and an uh, option. And uh, I kind of started to understand things about myself that I hadn't known before. And um, it was also – so I was able – I fell in love with women. And I also – the liberation of it was also about – being able to wear and act however you liked. It was like being a tomboy again because I had been a tomboy um, as a young woman and then pu- puberty comes along and suddenly you're expected to behave and look in certain ways and all of a sudden those expectations from the patriarchy were lifted and I had a mohawk and Doc Martin boots and I ju- it was like liberating on so many fronts to be in a women-only space.
1: Jane, was it a similar experience for
2: you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was more than a peace camp. It was an alternative way of being, of of living radical feminism, really. It's a process, for me, I think it was a process of liberation and self-discovery and a real challenge to sort of heterosexual societal norms. We were doing things in a different way. And it was really liberating to think that that actually was possible. Um, So it was great for exploring your own personality, your identity, your relationship with other people, Um, I think it just changed so many of us in so many different ways.
0: I love that. And I just want to add, because somebody said, and I think it was um, Rebecca Johnson recently said that we came for the peace and we stayed for the feminism. I love that because that is exactly (laughs) what I did.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, you didn't, by your own account, know much about the nuclear industry when you came to protest there. And at one point you describe in the memoir, you broke into the Aldermaston defence research base without knowing what it was. (laughs) And you, you ended up giving yourself up to the police over that. Tell us what happened.
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, we were a group of women at Bluegate and we were a bit cross because there'd been this big meeting about 10 million women and some women wanted to have this big demonstration of 10 million women coming to Greenham and we weren't really into that. So one of us said, oh, let's just go and spray paint, spray paint the planes at Abingdon. I've done it before. It was a lot of fun and it'll take the energy away from Greenham and focus on other things. So We couldn't find Abingdon, and on the way back, we saw a sign for Aldermaston, and all of us knew it was something nuclear, but none of us really remembered what it was, which I should have done since my parents were peace activists and went on the Aldermaston marches. But anyway, couldn't remember what it was, Um, but we just went there anyway. And we broke in so easily. We just kind of broke our way in. We walked around for a couple of hours, I think, and we saw these great big bin bags with radiation stickers on them and buildings with scary signs on, like, do not stand within 15 feet of this building. And, and in the end, we got bored. No one was there to arrest us, um, so which is quite remarkable when you consider what they do there. And so we left. And then as we were leaving, we walked through an area that we'd crawled through on the way in and saw a sign saying, restricted area, do not enter. And we started to wonder what it was. And by the time we got back to the camp and spoke to some women there, we decided to call Greenpeace. And Greenpeace said, you know, you might have been exposed to radiation, but we don't have a Geiger counter. You've got to hand yourselves in if you really want to know if you were exposed to radiation, which is quite possible at a place like Aldermaston. So we phoned, I phoned the police and said, as uh, a bunch of green and women, we've just broken into Aldermaston, please, would you come and arrest us? And they said, well, if you could go to Orange Gate, uh, which So we went to Orange Gate and a white policeman came and uh, they wouldn't touch us because they thought we might have been radiated. They just asked us to get into the van. They wouldn't give us any water to drink because they said, if you have been exposed, you don't want to uh, take any further in you than you need to or whatever. And then they got two scientists came from Aldermaston, probably like around six in the morning. So we were there all night and then the scientists came with a Geiger counter and they ran it over us. And told us that we were fine. So even though it did speed up at certain points, they said it was fine. So we were arrested. A few days later, I had did loads of phone calls. Now then, I knew everything about Aldermaston, unfortunately, and I was quite. We were quite worried. So I was speaking to people like scientists against nuclear energy and other experts around the country, and they all said if it sped up at some point. You may well have been exposed, and you need to go to the National Radiological Protection Board in Harwell and uh, have a proper test. So, five of us, the five of us went and um, had some proper testing, and we were told that we were clear and we only had the same amount of radiation that we all have in us from the testing in the Pacific in the 50s. So, that was rather sobering to discover that. But later on, um, I found out from a, a journalist that they had not looked for the right kind of radiation. And at that point, we were in our 20s, and we were being full on activists, I did not pursue it any further than that. So um, we don't really know if we were or not. Although I did get to know a person who'd been in charge of um, safety at Aldermaston, and he had been extremely helpful and talked about what he thought might have, we may well have been exposed to uh, it because they might have buried radiated equipment underneath that area that we were in. (laughs) And what was
1: the outcome of handing yourself into the police?
0: They well they took us inside the base which was unusual normally they take you down to the police station and um, there were two of them they played good cop bad cop with us for a while and then they took us to the police station and arrested us and charged us with criminal damage And we ended up a year later having a court case at Reading Crown Court where we apparently had done something worse than if we'd broken into Greenham. We expected to go to Newbury magistrates, but we ended up at Crown Court in Reading.
1: And was this the time when you were able to make links to the anti-apartheid movement in the defence that you were putting across? Because you represented yourself, didn't you, in court?
0: Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah, we... We each took a different defense. We decided to defend ourselves. Uh, Well, four of us did, and one of us had a lawyer. And I chose as my defense the fact that in Aldermaston, they were using uranium from Namibia, which was illegal because it was an apartheid country and so I had been very involved in the anti-apartheid movement at university not long before I went to Greenham and so I contacted people in that movement and we managed to get a representative from SWAPO which is the Southwest Africa People's Organization to come and speak in court in our support and even we got a telegram, imagine it, a telegram from the United Nations um, in support of what we've done because under UK law, we could break the law to prevent a greater crime. So that was that was our, our basis for all of us. I was trying to prevent the greater crime of trading with an apartheid country. One of us was trying to prevent the greater crime of starting a nuclear war. Um, the other one was uh, on behalf of the people and animals that lived nearby that could be radiated. So we each took a different aspect of what we now knew about Aldermarsen. And I was quite Happy to be able to talk about apartheid. And in fact, the judge in his speech uh, at the end acknowledged that apartheid was a, a terrible thing, but that this really wasn't the place to talk about it. It wasn't his role to legislate on it. But yeah.
1: <laughs> How did you
0: get convicted? We got a two year suspended
1: sentence, yes. So that could have been a lot worse, couldn't it?
0: Actually, a two, two year conditional discharge, sorry, that's what it was called. It could have been a lot worse. And in fact, we were told. Because, you know, it went in waves how long women were sent to prison for. And we were told just a couple of weeks before our court case that the precedent for us now was a few months in prison. And that was not what I had ever intended to put myself at risk for. And so we did during this whole court case, we were expecting to go to prison. And it was a nice surprise to just get a two year conditional discharge.
1: Jane, this was a movement that relied a lot on magazines and newsletters to spread the word, because it's it's maybe hard to imagine for people under 40, but uh, back in the 80s, there wasn't any way of spreading the word quickly about demonstrations and protests like this. Tell us about how these kind of actions and how the Greenham Common women got out the word about what they were doing?
2: That's a, that's a great question, because like you say, today, people would just find it hard to to imagine how you'd get so many people involved in a protest without using, you know, Twitter and social media and, and things like that. But then, you know, we very much had to rely on producing our own materials, um, which we all did. And I think one of the great things about that is that they were so interesting. They were so diverse. It was a great way of keeping people connected by, you know, handwriting and duplicating uh, leaflets. And people would, they were really artistic. You know, people would put a lot of effort into, you know, creating wonderful images, lots of symbolic images like webs and spiders and dragons and witches And, you know, people, you know, used art in order to get messages across and we used to just distribute these. We were all anybody who was involved in any sort of campaign work, whether that was in the peace movement or in the animal rights movement or the feminist movement. We all produced our own leaflets and mainly they were handwritten because we didn't even have many typewriters at the time. But what that did is actually produce a whole range of really wonderful and inspiring uh, materials. And it's great to actually look back on some of those to see how wonderful they actually are. And because they were handmade, they were very distinctive, you know, from different groups of people. And it was just wonderful to see those sort of symbols of resistance coming out through those sort of, you know, people's own design skills. And
1: you had some sympathetic backing in the national press, didn't you? I mean, The Guardian and Spare Rib, not really exactly mainstream, but still the kind of magazine that uh, lo- quite a lot of women read and which backed you. But it wasn't, you didn't always get an easy ride from the media.
2: Not from the media at all. I mean, it was, you know, of course, from Spare Rib, you'd sort of expect that, you know, being a feminist magazine. But from the press, it was very much the opposite really derogatory language used against the women at the camp. Horrible, smelly lesbians was, you know, a constant phrase that was used. Uh, we were called dirty, untidy, reckless. Um, we were, <laughs> and we were in lots of ways, absolutely. Um, but that's one of the consequences of being at the camp, you know, living outside. You know, it's, it's different. Um, you have different clothes and different hairstyles, which fit the circumstances. But no, the press was very, very difficult, different, um, and hostile in the main, to what was happening. Um, you know, The Guardian, you know, there was some sympathetic reporting in The Guardian, but overall it was, it was generally quite negative. And that was quite surprising, really, given the fact that there was a lot of support amongst the public for what was going on and for the women's uh, peace movement in general. So, in a sense, the press was sort of behind um, where they, sort of, you know, the mass of the po- population, I think, was actually there in, in terms of its support of Greenham.
1: And sometimes you were blamed for abandoning children in order to
2: go and protest, weren't you? Well, there was one particular court case where a woman had her child um, taken away from her, lost custody of her child because her husband complained about her being at Greenham and said she wasn't an appropriate mother. Um, And that was a very, very political trial that took place. Um, I'm I'm not certain that would happen today, but it was a way of undermining what was going on at Greenham and ensuring that women got back into the place where they were expected to be, which was in the home. So a lot of women did leave the camp as a consequence of that because they were fearful of losing custody of their children.
1: There was a high point in 1982 when I think 30,000 women embraced the base formed a human chain, basically, around the edge. Where either of you there for that?
2: I was there. I was 21 years old. Um, and I again, I went down with a, a group of women from Manchester. We hired a transit van and we went down there. And it was just absolutely wonderful to see 30,000 women there. All bringing items, personal items, with them to attach to the fence, um, and it was great to see. You know, people were putting pictures of the of children. Actually, there was one, several cases of women putting their wedding dresses attaching the wedding dresses to the offences, you know, to show the, the way that they've escaped from patriarchy. But it was a wonderful thing where we all held hands around the base. And it's, you know, it's what nine, was it nine miles uh, wide, the whole of the base, there's a perimeter. And um, so it's just wonderful and inspirational to be part of a peace movement with so many women at that day.
0: Maybe I held your hand. I was there too. And I was the same age. And I went with my mum. I came up from Bath University with a group of women um, from the peace movement there. And my mother lived nearby. And so we went together to them. So
1: in 1989, the nuclear missiles began to be removed from Greenham. What was your reaction when that happened?
2: For me, it was a sense of achievement. It, It showed that protest and direct action can work, especially when it reaches into the wider community. It was a long, hard, and difficult fight in lots of ways. But it was also, as I said, you know, it created a huge sort of strength amongst women, um, a different way of living. And it was just, we can do things if we get together. It shows the, the positive nature of the collective, really, for me. When you
1: look at what XR are doing now and their tactics, do you see echoes of Greenham in there? Because I was thinking recently there were some. Cram push and there was a feed in as well. Women bringing along their children and women are quite prominent in XR. Do you think in some ways that Greenham has inspired the the mod movement?
2: I think Greenham has inspired all movements uh, since it was established. To be honest, and I think very much so. I I also see the echoes um, of the tactics that were used at Greenham at you know XR's actions. The lying down in the streets, you know, the the non violent direct action, the uh, passivity in terms of lying in the street and refusing to move, the mass arrests, all those are echoes of what happened at Greenham.
0: I feel as if there's a a thread of history that goes through um, many movements where we decide we're just going to lie down, take to the streets, and Greenham Common's an important part of that. But I also feel that we were pretty much silenced and that very few people knew about us, even though we might have known about the suffragettes, or the civil rights movement. So it was interesting to me how few people in XR actually had really heard of us and are getting to know about us now, at least among the people I know.
1: Well, Stephanie and Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy the bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. the audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.